And as they're dismissed, the rest of us, let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11, as we're now on the home stretch and looking at the uh, nature and purposes of the church. John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. Let me read them. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my, in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And I've told you this so that my joy be in you and that your joy may be complete. Lord God, I just want to thank you for these verses that your son uttered. We ask this morning, Lord, as we come to your word, that you would speak to us of these eternal things, that our hearts, our minds, and and our lives would reflect you more and more. And so we ask for you to help. We ask for you to teach us now, Lord Jesus. And whatever's not of you, may it just fall on deaf ears, but whatever's of your spirit, I pray that it would revolutionize our hearts our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen. Last week, we focused on the abiding church, the church that remains. Jesus said in John 15, verse 8, which are the verses that just preceded the ones we just read, he said, if you remain in me or abide in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. It is clear that Jesus desires that each of us remain and abide in him. And as we are in this abiding relationship with Jesus, like a branch attached to a vine, we will by nature of that relationship begin to produce the fruit of that relationship, hopefully much fruit the more mature we become, showing ourselves to be his disciples. Jesus uses this imagery of his father being the gardener, of Jesus being the vine, and of us being the branches. He uses that imagery and how we are attached to Jesus. And the picture is that God desires a harvest of righteousness from his vineyard, from us. And the grapes that we produce, this fruit that he's asking for, is a product of the life-giving relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. Many of us have never experienced this life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. There are people who have gone to church their entire lives that are detached from Jesus Christ. They've gone through the outward motions of going to church and praying and all these types of things, and they have no clue about what this is. It's the danger of religion. Jesus uses this imagery, and elsewhere in Matthew 7, to be more specific, Jesus uses the imagery of two types of trees to describe the fruit that comes from the lives of people. You're one type of tree or another. There's either a good tree bearing good fruit or a bad tree bearing bad fruit. Jesus is pretty black and white. Pretty good for, uh, you know, the king of the universe to bring it down to a level that we can understand. Bad fruit is no fruit in his eyes. And the picture painted by Jesus with these images is that if we have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, then we are by nature, when we're born again, we're a good tree because we're his tree. He abides in us and we are in him. And this is because God dwells within us now. We're we're born of a new nature. The Spirit of Christ now lives within us, and His life um, is our life. His thoughts become our thoughts. His character becomes evident in our life. His righteousness is going to be seen in, in how we think 
And in what we actually say and in what we actually do, it's going to become more and more evident as the fruit of righteousness comes out, as Philippians 1.11 describes it. It's because, church, we have been made righteous that we produce those righteous thoughts, those righteous words come out of our mouth, the, the righteous deeds come out. Religion is trying to get dead people to do living things. A relationship with Jesus Christ is living people living out the life that is within them. Religion doesn't work. That's bad fruit, bad tree. Judas was one of those examples of someone who had all the accoutrements of religion. They went to church, they acted, they did all those things, but on the inside, they were never connected to Christ. And so, that other kind of tree, it might look like a good tree, it might do Christian things, it mimic Christian culture even, but... That kind of tree or branches, it's superficial. It's not attached to the vine. It's not attached to Christ. It hasn't been born again like Judas. And the bad fruit eventually is manifested because it does not have a relationship with the life-giving vine who is Jesus Christ. The vines and the branches that are disconnected from Christ, they wither and they die, and they're only good for one thing, firewood. That's what the beginning of John 15 talks about. So if you have not been born again, it is possible to live, it is impossible, but rather to say, to live this fruitful life. And although it is quite possible to mimic the life of a Christian, God knows your heart. He can see through all of it. Where I might not, or your parents might not, or someone else around you, they might go, oh, they're doing all the right things, yay, checkbox. God looks into the soul. He sees what we do not see. God knows your heart. And if you do not repent and you do not believe in Jesus, you will perish in your sin. As Jesus said in John 3, 35-36, He says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Verses we like to avoid in church. Not great for attendance. The truth, nonetheless. Because Jesus desires true vines, I mean, true branches to be attached to the vine, not fake ones. Amen? And so if you've never been born again, and here's the good news, if you have never been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, this morning is the morning, today is the day of salvation, that you can become alive. First, you must choose to repent, that is to turn from your sin. It weighs on you with a weight that you could never get off, and you know it, it's in your heart. The Holy Spirit has made it very evident the role of the Holy Spirit of God is to convict you of your sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so he is pressure cooking you so that you come to the fact that I cannot save myself. I am lost. I need to be saved. And he's shoving you towards a Savior. Amen. First, you must turn from your sin. But you don't just turn from your sin. You actually turn towards God to save you from it because you realize you have no power over it. Amen? It is God who saves you from the power of sin. And so you must turn towards God to save you from God's wrath. The very one in whom you're debt to, the one who, to whom you will give an account and to where he will judge is the very one who desires to remove your guilt from you and to save you. Isn't that good news? Matthew 25, 46 speaks of the eternal destinations of the wicked and the righteous. It says that if those who reject Christ, it says that they will go away to eternal punishment. That's the end road of rejecting Christ. 
but the righteous will go on to eternal life. Those are the two paths of every single human being in this room on the face of the earth. You either are righteous or you're wicked. And that is all about who you are attached to. Have you been born again or have you not? And so you are saved by turning from your sin and turning to God to save you from your sin because he sent his son to die in your place on the cross. Think of all the things that you have done in your life. All the, and then, by the way, the things you don't know that everybody else knows about you. And there's the things you don't, that none of y'all know about yourself, that God knows. Every single thing will be brought to account. Every single thing will be judged. God does not grade on a curve. And he put the full wrath of his judgment on his son for those who believe. That is good news. Your record can be totally expunged. Actually, it says that God remembers it no more. How many of you like to have that happen? Amen. Amen. And so you must believe upon the Lord Jesus to save you by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross in your place for your sin. And by believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. Believe and you will be saved. Believe and you will be saved right now. Confess to God, God, I'm a sinner. I could never pay out this debt. I believe that Jesus died in my place. Save me. And right now, God will do something spiritual in your heart because that is the gospel. He will save you. Now, it is not a one prayer and done thing. It is a lifelong repentance. It is a lifelong faith, a lifelong belief. Amen? We've got to make sure we get that right. Because <laughs> there's a false gospel that says pray a prayer and then go do whatever you want. That's a bad tree. It never really happened. But see, when, when God causes you to be born again, you're attached to Christ. And now as a result of that relationship, you're born again, you're attached to the vine, then the life starts to flow. You see how that works? It's evident now in your life. And so from that time forward, you will be born of God. Of course, that is all God's doing. He did the, the, the heavy lifting. You simply believe in the work that Christ did on your behalf. And you're going to begin to desire what God desires. So much of religion is, oh, I want to desire that, but I just don't. But see, when Christ is in you, you it's, it's absolutely evident. Wow, I desire righteous things. And these other things don't have room in my life anymore. God, get rid of them. That's our prayer. Amen. Lord, change me. And your life starts to go down this path where Christ starts to grow up and well up within you and these other things start to go away and you begin to mature and to bear fruit as you are connected to the vine. And it begins to bring God glory because he's taken a wretched sinner like me, like you, and he's changed us from inside out. And that's the proof. Praise the Lord. And so as you let his word fill your hearts and as you pray for God's will to be done and as you then obey God, you're going to begin to see this fruit well up in your life. And so the church is to be an abiding church by nature. That's who we are. We're connected to Christ. We're connected to the life of Christ. The Lord desires that we bear much fruit. You ever had a tree where just like, hey, like one almost something grew on it? No. God wants overflowing fruit in your life. And, and as I was talking last week about John Davin, he's actually here this morning, he's not out fighting fires. The more mature a tree is, the more nutrients, the bigger the roots, the longer it's, it's, it's been in the ground and been drinking the water, quite often the, the more load-bearing it's able to have, the more fruit is produced. And so as we are connected to the vine, there's just more and more and more and more righteous fruit happening in our lives. Amen. 
We do not want to be the superficial, disconnected, hypocritical Christians. And you're either one or the other. And so, the church is an abiding church by nature. We're connected to the life of Christ. The Lord desires that we bear much fruit. But what does that fruit look like of that abiding relationship? What does it really look like? What is the essence of the fruit that God desires? If we're a product of being connected with Christ, if we're a product of that relationship with Jesus, what word would you use to describe the nature of our relationship with Christ and the fruit that it, it, it produces? I know that's kind of me thinking through something 15 ways, but if we're connected to Jesus, what we produce should look like whatever that nature of that relationship is, right? What does that look like? Well, verse 9 starts to illuminate that. It says, as the Father has loved me, so I have what? I've loved you. Now remain in my love. Without a doubt, Jesus defines our abiding relationship with him as a relationship that is permeated in his love for us. Church, God loves you. Jesus loves you. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Stay put. Stay in my love. This love is the essence of the church. When you bite into a church, this is what you should get. How many of you bite into church and you get sour? No, that's like rotten fruit. Let's knock that off. We want to have love when we get approached, when we get hit, when we get persecuted, when we get... All these things. Love. The church, by its very nature, is a church that is loved by God and then who also goes and loves. Amen? Some of you have never truly been loved by your earthly parents. You don't know what that, that's like. You didn't have it modeled or they loved you as best as possible. Let me tell you, there is a love that surpasses that in the Father. There's a love that you've been loved with in Christ Jesus that will over overcome and overshadow all of that if you let them. And just so we don't get confused about what kind of love Jesus is talking about, Jesus isn't talking about a love that is our cultural love. Jesus defines it right there in verse 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That's what the love is like that he's talking about, church. That's the kind of love that's supposed to be in the church. The love that Jesus has loved his church with is the same kind of love that God the Father and God the Son share. Love isn't our idea. Did you know that? The church did not invent love. Human beings did not invent love. Love comes from God. That is his very essence. That is his very nature. That is who he is. It was before time began. And our perversion of it needs to be restored. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. The love that Jesus has loved the church with is the same kind of love that God the Father and God the Son share. And Jesus gives us a glimpse into this. In John 17, flip over there. It's only two, two pages. 17, flip right. He gives us a glimpse into the love that the Father and the Son share. Let me give you a quick snapshot. John 17, this is the high priestly prayer. He's praying for those who would believe at this point, the future believers. That's us. In verses 20 through 26, Jesus is praying for those who would believe. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, that's his disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Verse 21, that all of them may be what? One, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's this relationship that the Father and the Son have that is 
so tight. And Jesus is praying that we would be brought into that relationship and that relationship of unity would be the witness to the world. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The love of God is a unifying love. The love that the Father has for the Son is an undivided love. It's a love that desires to be with someone else so that everything that is done is for their benefit and draws them closer. This is not compromising um, in the area of morality. That is not the nature of God's love. Oh, I love you, so go ahead and continue on your sin. That is not what he's talking about. You. That's actually what separates us from God. Sin separates The world's definition of love is do whatever you want, right? That's love. Let me be me. No, repent. Draw close to God and he'll draw near to you. That's the message of the gospel. You can be saved from who you are so that you may be in our love. Different. Father, verse 24, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. Do you see Jesus' heart, his desire for you to be where he is and to see his glory? Do you know that's God's plan for you? To go and to buy you from the slave market of sin, to give you his nature through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to make you a son, to make you a daughter, to draw you into his family, to take you to his eternal home that you may share in the glory eternally that he has shared with the Father from all time. What is that? Wow, what kind of love is that? A love that left and came and sacrificed all to grab us and to bring us where he is. I want them to see. This is an eternal love. Notice he goes on, he says, is, and, and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Notice the nature of God's love. It's eternal. It's before us began here, whatever the grammar is. Where we began here, right? It is unending. It's without beginning, without end. This is the love that God has for the Son. And that the Son has for those who believe upon Him. Amen. Verse 25, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. You see this repetition over and over and over and over and over. The love that the Father has for the Son is to be transferred to sinners who are saved by grace. And so this is another kind of love altogether than what we experience in the world. As many of you know, there are several words for love in in the Greek. There's a lot of them, four that we kind of focus on mostly. There's eros, which speaks of a physical love, like between a husband and wife. Then there's storge, which speaks of the love of family, between maybe children and a parent. Then there's phileo, which is the the brotherly love, like Philadelphia, the the city of brotherly love, kind of. And then there's agape, kind of a weird word, which is the word Jesus uses here to describe the unconditional love that God the Father and the Son have shared from all eternity. It's hard to understand this love. This word has the idea of charity within it. The idea is that it has the good will of another at its center. And so you see this relationship between the Father and the Son. Everything that the Son does 
is to glorify the Father. Everything that the Father done is, does is to glorify the Son. They're equal, and yet they have different roles. The Father is the authority, and yet He gives all the authority to Christ to go work out His will. And there's this relationship. Everything they do is to bring the glory. The Spirit comes in there. The Spirit testifies of the Son who testifies of the Father. Everything the Father does glorifies the Son, and Jesus sends the Spirit. You see how all this is all interconnected? And God says, I want you to be a part of this love that is just giving for the other person's benefit and for their glory. Jesus says in verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Jesus has loved us with this love that was shared from eternity between the Godhead. How has this love been demonstrated by the Father and the Son towards us? We know the answer to this. The Father has demonstrated it. John 3.16, For God so agaped the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe upon Him would not perish but would have eternal life. So God agaped, He loved us so much that He gave His only beloved Son to redeem us. His love caused Him to give towards our need at the expense of His suffering and the loss of His Son. That's the kind of love he's talking about. Jesus loved the Father to the point where he obeyed the Father, even though it would cost him his own life. You see that picture? And Jesus loved us because he willingly laid down his life for you and me. This is the kind of love Jesus is speaking, a love that gives, a self-sacrificing love that meets another's deepest needs. Jesus in verse 9 says, I have loved you with the love that my Father has loved me. And he goes on to say in the rest of verse 9, now stay in my love. Abide in my love. Did you hear that, church? Stay in his love. What in the world is he talking about? Jesus wants us to abide in that relationship. Stay put. Jesus isn't speaking about emotion here. Many of us stay in relationships because there's an emotional benefit, which there is. Love has emotion attached to it, of course, right? We're not automatrons, I love you. He isn't staying, saying, stay in my love as long as you feel it. That's not what he said, is it? He doesn't say, as long as I give you what you want, as long as it works out for your life's goals and your plans, as long as I answer all your prayers, as long as I make you rich and healthy, as long as you're getting what you want, stay in my love. That's how the world loves. That's not the love that God is talking about from all eternity past. That love is about self. It's conditional. And that is the love that this generation is being taught is love. You've been lied to. It's a perversion. It's a distortion. It's destructive. It's a mutation. It's a virus. John in 1 John 2.15, who addresses in 1 John the the whole thing, he's talking about love because it's a very important concept. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, love, of the, for the uh, love for the Father is not in them. A selfish love, a person who's defined by selfish love, it says the love of the Father is not in them. That is not what this love is about. The love that Jesus is asking you to remain in isn't the kind of love that our culture and our entertainment and our media are peddling as love. And many Christians are frustrated with God and their relationship with God because they feel He doesn't love them. You are mistaken. God has loved you with an everlasting love. He does love you. You're just blind to it because you're using the world's definition of love, not God's, the broken definition. The nature of the love we share with God is not a self-serving love. 
That's the world's love. And Paul speaks of this self-serving love that permeates our culture and our thoughts and our relationships and gets dragged into the church by all of us. He speaks about it in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, where he warns young Pastor Timothy, he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And we are experiencing terrible times in the last days. Why? Because people will be lovers of themselves. That is exactly what is going on. From the highest part of our country all the way down, lovers of self. It is absolutely evident. Some are more polished than others. And we're all guilty of it, by the way. And this is really what has taken root in our society, a, a love for self, the world's love. And it manifests itself in other ways as Paul continues here. He says, when you love yourself, you're going to be lovers of money. You're going to be boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to your parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control. This is what dominates our culture. It really does. Without self-control, brutal. People are brutal. Why? Because they're selfish. Why? Because they're bad trees. Because they haven't experienced the love of God. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness. Notice he's talking about religious people. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. What is the power? God changes our hearts. He makes it so that we were once these ways, but now we're not. How? Because we've been born again. We don't have to put plastic fruit on our tree. We don't have to manufacture the fruit. It grows because you're attached. That love, all those things there in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, that's the world's love, the love that is rooted in the self-love. That's the TV love. TV love, you can call it that. Jesus' love is different. Jesus' love is for others, agape love. Jesus desires that we remain in his love. And so how do we remain in his love? Church, this is where we've got to focus. We're on the home stretch here. How do you remain in his love? Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will what? You're going to remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now this is where you can get real legalistic. The way we stay in Christ's love, and I would also add experience Christ's love, is through obedience. Our church, big bullseye target is we exist to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. To love God is to obey Jesus Christ. <laughs> Obedience is God's love language. It might not be yours, but that is His love. That's how it works. And He created the universe, so conform. <laughs> obedience how many of you enjoy it when people say I love you but they never do what you ask them to do they truly don't what love you but I tell you someone who loves you is going to be listening to every word you say they're going to be finding ways that they can fulfill your will right they're going to give themselves into your life in various ways to stand God's love, church, that abiding fruitful relationship with Jesus Christ, we follow Jesus' example of obedience to the Father as Jesus kept his Father's commands, so we keep Jesus' commands. If we keep Jesus' commands to us, we're going to remain in his love. Plainly put, we show our love for God by obeying Jesus. How's that going? You and the Holy Spirit, have fun. <laughs> right? And so 
We hear God's word, we pray that it would happen, and then we obey. We hear, pray, obey. That's John 15. Hear, pray, obey, fruit, boom, because we're attached to him. But, and so, and so the degree that, real quickly, you obey God is the degree that you're going to experience the love of God moving in and through you. And really, this is manifested in joy. If you are a joyless Christian, either you're not a Christian, I want to be serious, because you never were attached, or you're not remaining in His love. <laughs> you're not attached to the vine. You're not remaining in His love. You're not simply just obeying the Lord because your soul is conflicted within you. Because he tells you one thing and you do another and you're just like, eh, miserable. You lose your joy. You lose your peace. Does it mean you're not saved? No. It means that you're disobedient. And so you move to phase two, the discipline of God. Because he loves you, he disciplines you. We don't discipline our neighbor's kids, hopefully, although it seems like we're starting to now. We need to probably... <laughs> but we don't discipline. You discipline what? Your kids. Why? Because you love them, right? And so God, you enter into discipline, and trials start to enter your life, and unnecessary trouble enters your life. I'm not saying Christianity is a trouble-free life. That is not what I'm preaching. If you've been here for any time whatsoever, you know I don't teach that. Christianity is the cross, okay? But unnecessary pains, running yourself through with a bunch of stuff, it enters your life. And instead of the peace of God, you lose your peace. Instead of the joy of God, you experience a lack of joy and a lack of peace, and you're often joyless. Quite often comes right back to disobedience. Quite often. This is why Jesus says in the next verse, I've told you this, in verse 11, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus wants you to be a joyful Christian. And the way that it works, I love this acronym I learned when I was little. How many of you know it? Joy is Jesus, others, you. You want to have joy in your life. Jesus first, others second, you last. Joy. I love that. Simple, clear, helps me. I need helpful things. And so we are to remain in Jesus' love by obeying Jesus' commands. Well, what does that look like? What do the commands look like? Verse 12. My command is this. What? Love each other as I have loved you. Makes it really simple. You need to love each other you're commanded, notice it's not the, uh, okay, this is my suggestion for a joyful life if you want it. This is my command to my church. You are to love one another. If Jesus were here and he were to stand here and he were to say, you, 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 love one another, it is not optional. This is the life I have for you and you're going to have joy as a result. Yeah, but they're unlovable. Yes, I know you are. And I loved you, <laughs> and I still do. And by the way, you're becoming more loving by the day, the more <laughs> we're attached to each other, right? You love one another. And this is the summation of the new covenant and the old covenant. The old covenant, it hangs on love God, love one another. It hasn't changed, really. Love God and love one another, and we show our love for God by loving one another. What does it look like to love one another? It looks how Jesus loved us. He goes on in verse 13, Greater love has known this than to what? Lay down one's life for his friends. Christianity is not Christianity apart from the cross. We must always deny self, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. We want to be Christians without the cross, without self-denial, without laying down our lives for others. It is not Christianity. It is not love. It is not abiding. That is a false gospel, a false church that is what the world wants. 
It's Jesus' love, right? You see the picture? The Father's love for us was demonstrated in giving His only Son. Jesus' love for the Father and for us was demonstrated in Him obeying the Father and laying His life down for us. He had laid it down. God gave His only Son that cost Him. Jesus laid down His life. It cost Him for others. And just as Jesus was obedient to the Father and laying down His life for us, so now we are obedient to Jesus by laying down our lives for one another. That's love. And the church is a picture, guys, of God's sacrificial love. And this is so important because we're going to roll into the gifts of the Spirit next week. Chapter 12 talks about gifts. Chapter 14 talks about gifts. Chapter 13 is the what chapter? The love chapter. We often focus more on the gifts what our gifts might be, rather than reality that God has gifted you with a gift to lay down your life with it. Oh, I'm gifted in mercy. Well, lay it out. Go love it out. Pour out your life for the church with that. I'm gifted in service. Serve till your bones are, you can see them through your skin. Lay it out. Love like God loved, sacrificially. Ouch. Let's talk about the gifts of the Spirit, what your gifts are and who you are and what your part is in the body because God commands you within that context to love. We only have a few minutes, so I'm going to skip over a lot of verses. Again, the church is the mosaic of God's love. That love is shown through our obedience to Christ and his commands to love one another. And to further paint the picture, there's 50 verses in the New Testament. I was going to go through each one in depth with you right now. <laughs> it's okay, you've got time. You don't need to eat. I'm just kidding. 50 verses in the New Testament that are, are one another. It's like 47 or some say 56. or it's just, I'm just saying 50, okay? There's a lot of commands for us to one another each other. In other words, he gives you practical ways in which we are to love one another. The New Testament gives several lists. There's groups of them, and in one-third of them, uh, one of these one-another commands in the New Testament are about unity. Let me rattle off some. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Paul was speaking about the unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. Wait for one another before beginning uh, communion. Don't bite and devour and consume one another. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. So there's positive and negatives, right? Humbly, gently, and patiently bear with one another in love. Be kind and tenderhearted to one another. Forgive one another. Bear with and forgive one another. And just reading them off here. Seek good for one another and don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess your sins to one another. These are all ways that we're shown to love. About 15% deal with about, uh, speak about showing humility to one another. A way that we show God's love is by being humble with one another. This is be devoted to what in this Romans 12:10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourself. Do not not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Is that what we're preoccupied with? Are we preoccupied with them? The people around you? Not what I'm going to do today, but how I can serve God in their lives today. That is what I'm going to do today. That is the church. It's different, isn't it? It's not the kingdom of me. It's the kingdom of God. It keeps on going and serve one another. Wash one another's feet. Give each other a holy kiss. That's a command. And that doesn't mean go kissing each other. In the context, it was... Be affectionate towards one another. Care for one another. Greet one another. Say hello in whatever the culture is. Amen? How many of us just walk by people? I do. I'm guilty. We're all busy. You know, right? so, but I mean, really, just take the time to shake someone's hand and say hello. 
Greet them in the Lord. How are you? God bless you. Really care. Another 15% fall in various categories. Don't judge one another. Greet one another with a kiss. Again, it's like four or five times there. Husband and wives, don't deprive one another of physical intimacy. There's a one another for you. Bear one another's burdens. Speak the truth to one another. Don't lie to one another. Encourage and comfort one another concerning those who have died in the Lord. Thessalonians, right? 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Encourage and build up one another. And this one just hits home for me. And let us, this is Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us consider that. Let us be our thinking process. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day approaching. That's a huge one. Pray for one another. Be hospitable. And the last group deals with just flat-out commands to love one another. It's another third. And I'll just read one or two of them. Galatians 5.13, You, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free. We do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You have all this freedom in Christ, but don't let your freedom, freedom be an opportunity to say, I can do whatever I want, and you just need to grow up. Yes, I tell you to grow up all the time, but you know what I'm talking about. I'm getting it too. But I use my freedom. Really, the exercise of love is not exercising my freedom. <laughs> but walking along in unity and love with someone else who might not be as far along in their, their understanding of the Lord and raising them up to the standards that God has for them through relationship. That's sacrifice. That's love. Think of Jesus and us. That puts it in context. He kind of knows what's going on. He came down and he humbled himself and loved us and brought it, is bringing us up, raising us up. And then John just, Jesus gives all those commands in John 13, 34. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Again in 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And again in verse 17, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then the apostle John goes on and repeats it a hundred times. And Paul speaks the command to love one another in Romans 13, 8 through 10. He says, let no debt be remain outstanding. Accept the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandment, you shall not commit murder, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be are all summed up in this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other um, um, and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. It's, our love isn't to be like, I loved you, checkbox. It's an abounding love, church. It isn't a stagnant love. It, in Thessalonians 4.9, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. God teaches us to love. He, it bears witness in our hearts what we should do, amen? Don't sear that conscience. And in fact, you do love all of God's family through Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. God's love is to abound. It's to overflow like a tree that's getting bigger. And Peter, who had huge lessons on love, also speaks of loving one another. 1 Peter 1.22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. The huge, sincere love, it comes from purified souls, and a purified soul comes from faith and hope in Jesus Christ. We obeyed when we believed. And as a result of being connected, now we love. And that love should grow more and more. And this is the last one I want to share with you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Whether Christ comes to get us or you're going to die, the end of all things is near, church. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, above all, love each other deeply or fervently. 
because love covers a multitude of sin. Peter here is using a word picture. He is saying the end is almost here. Be awake and sober. Don't take a nap in the fourth quarter. Stay awake. In verse 8, above all, love each other deeply or fervently. Ectenas is the word. And the word means for fervent there to stretch out to capacity. Have you ever been in a situation where your body was in such strenuous situation that you felt your muscles almost tearing? The idea is a runner whose muscles are being stretched to full capacity as they're about to go across that, the finish line. They are, every ounce of energy is being poured. Every muscle is being stretched to the greatest capacity that they're almost being torn apart. Love like that. Love fervently, love deeply. Love is willing to overlook sin. Love is willing to forgive sin. Even when you're mistreated, love is about all about the other person's spiritual need being met through whatever capacity God has given you. And no greater picture is there than of that love than our Lord who is stretched out on a cross. Psalm 22, 14 speaks of this when the psalmist prophesied about our suffering Jesus when he said, this is Jesus on the cross, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint and my heart has turned to wax for you. Church, Jesus was poured out. Jesus was stretched out and his heart was like wax for you and for me. What love. And now Jesus says to his church, as I have loved you, may you go love one another. Lord God, we ask that you would make it so. Forgive us of our unbelief. Forgive us of our lack of remaining in your love. Draw us back to the sweetness, Lord. We want to thank you. And we ask, Lord, that through this fellowship, Lord, your love would abound. It would abound more and more and more. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. In the name of Jesus, amen.